good to be with everybody once again uh, here. I think of you all the time. Pray for you all the time as well. Uh, it's been good to meet Donovan, though. First time I've had the uh, privilege of doing that. Heard all about him. Just never had the chance to actually meet him. So that's been uh, really good. And uh, welcome back. Good to have you here. I'm sure your family's thrilled with that as well. This morning, we're going to look at God's Word. Philippians 127. We're going to start, at least, by looking at just one verse. We may go past that a little bit, but we're going to start by looking at one verse, Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here ends God's word. Let's bow in prayer once again. Our Father in heaven, it is our privilege, our joy, to gather in this place, to sing your praises, to bring worship to your name. But it is also our need and desire to hear your word spoken to us. So, Lord, we look to you now and pray that you'd open our hearts and minds and speak words of life and truth to us. Lord, when you speak, things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. So, Lord, speak to us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A lot of reasons I wanted us to look at this verse here today. One, it's been so meaningful to me for so many years. Uh, to the point that we set this before our denomination as our denominational verse. And it has been embraced uh, as such. as the one verse that we hope will characterize the entire hundreds of thousands of people that make up uh, the Presbyterian Church in America and every single church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice several things in this verse. That it's all about the gospel. That this verse begins and ends with the gospel. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that we can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. The bookends of this text are the gospel itself. The good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This good news that the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 says is more than just information to be transmitted. But he says it is the power of God unto salvation. That that's why it is so important. That is why it is central to everything that we are, everything we believe, everything that we do as the people of God. 
Now, there are all sorts of different kinds of power that people reference in our world. In the military, you know, I talk about military power, you know. In government, it's political power. In the scientific world, it's nuclear power. In my day, people raised their voices and said power to the people. We've heard about black power. We hear about power in so many different ways. In all the different ways in which people have tried to leverage power to certain ends in this world. I would submit to you that there is no greater power in the universe than the gospel. And that is because the gospel has the capacity to do something that none of those other sources of power can do. Only the gospel can save and change the human soul. And that is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. I think of people in the, in the scriptures, for example, Zacchaeus. Some of you might remember this little guy who wanted to catch a view of Jesus. So he climbs a tree, but Jesus sees him. And Zacchaeus comes to know Christ. He is saved by the gospel. And this corrupt, selfish government official is turned into a man of humility and generosity who shares all that he has with the poor. If we're going to begin to see integrity in government, we need to see people who come to know Jesus Christ who are transformed by the power of the gospel. Amen. I think of the Gerasene demoniac, a man possessed by multiple demons under the powers of darkness. He comes to face Jesus. He is set free through the power of the gospel. If we're going to see the powers of darkness in our community, in our society, in our lives broken, it will be through the power of the gospel. Yeah. I think of the Apostle Paul, this man who was a murderer, who killed Christians, and who was a right-wing religious Pharisee until he comes to meet Jesus. And through the power of the gospel, he is set free. And with vigor and joy, he spends the rest of his life bringing the good news of Jesus to a lost and broken world. I think of people in history like the great Augustine, who lived so many years ago. And here's a man trying to find fulfillment and purpose in life through every way you can think of. Through drunken orgies and through all sorts of various indulgences until he comes to meet Jesus. Because his mother prayed for him so many years. And he is set free from the power of the gospel to find fullness of life. And this is the man who utters, Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I think of people like John Newton, a vicious and cruel slave trader who brought many of our ancestors to these shores under the worst of conditions, but he comes to know Jesus. And he writes for us an incredible hymn, Amazing Grace. And he becomes one of the most loving and caring pastors in all time. These things demonstrate the power of the gospel. Nothing else can do that. It's the gospel that breaks down barriers and brings people together in the name of Christ. It's the gospel that heals families, 
that transforms communities. And I believe in this gospel, not only because of what I see in the Bible, not only because of what I see in history, but because what Jesus has done for me. Because he took this life so consumed with selfishness and vanity and perversion and corruption of all kinds, and he set me free. And he has given me a life. And the only reason I do what I do today in ministry, the only reason I'm before you today to preach this message is because of Jesus, because of the power of the gospel. It is the only power on earth that has the capacity to save and change the human soul. This is the gospel. Like I said, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have instead everlasting life. That this gospel that says that, that he shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, just straight up, this is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas. And then to the twelve. And more, to five, more than 500 brethren at one time. This is the gospel. That Jesus laid down his life for us. No matter who you are, Jesus has paid the penalty you deserve by his suffering and death on the cross. That the bullet that was intended for you, he stepped in front and he took it. The wrath of God that was supposed to fall on you because of your own sin and the things you've done in this life, the things you've harbored in your heart, Jesus stepped in the way and he took the full blunt of the wrath of God for you. Jesus died on the cross for our sins he was buried and he rose from the dead so that not just that our slate is made clean, that we are forgiven, but now we are clothed in his righteousness and we have new power for living, resurrection life that is ours, new life in Christ. You know, when God looked down from heaven and he saw the world in its mess, he saw all the suffering of all the shootings, all the selfishness, all the violence, the cruelty, the injustice, all the sorrow and the pain, what did he do? He didn't send us a military leader. He didn't send us a doctor, though he did a lot of healing. He didn't send us a teacher, though he did a lot of teaching. He did not send us a social worker. He did not send us a politician, thank God. He sent us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's why on that Christmas Eve, the heavens split open and the angelic choirs began to sing at the top of their voice with a voice that would echo throughout eternity that today is born for you in the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is your hope. Because he's not come to deal with all the symptoms of a fallen, selfish, sinful, broken world. He's come to deal with the root cause of our sin. And that's why he suffers and dies and then rises from the grave for us. This is what is needed in our world. This is what is needed in Chicago. This is what is needed in this community. 
is to have the power of the gospel turned loose. And so it's all about the gospel. But he says it's not just only about the gospel per se, that this verse begins and it ends with its, with its focus on the gospel. But he says, I want you now, as my people, as he writes to the Philippian Christians then, as he writes to us now, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel. Now what does that mean? That's kind of hard to define a little bit. What does it mean now to conduct ourselves, or conduct our lives, this church, our ministries, everything that we do in light of the gospel? He says, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, doesn't matter. And whatever I hear about you, it's going to be all about you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, maybe we get our answer just a few verses up ahead in Philippians, where Paul already says this, just a few verses ahead of this. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is very much better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul is sold out for Jesus. And he says, you know, I would in many ways, I would just rather go and be with Jesus in heaven and set free from the hardships and the sorrows and everything else about this life. But as long as I am in the flesh, it is all about fruitful service for my Savior. I am sold out for Jesus. That is what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know, one of the things I look at, think about when I look at Paul, you read through Acts, read through his epistles, whatever. And you realize that Paul never got over the wonder and joy of being saved. He, you know, all, he gets the opportunity in Acts several times to tell his testimony all over again. I can't believe that Jesus saved me. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, those first 14, 18 verses where he breaks every rule of Greek grammar. And it's all just one long run-on sentence in the Greek, because he goes crazy with joy over his son. I can't believe that God, before the foundations of the world, set me aside to belong to him, set his love on me, he called me to himself, he justified me by faith, he has sealed me with the Holy Spirit, I have the gift of him, and he just goes crazy. And that's all. He, he never gets over that. That's why he does what he does. He's living his life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever your life situation is, that's what it means to be to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether you're a student, whether you've got a job, whether you're in the ministry, whatever the case might be, this is what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what he wants to see here is, is the fact that not just individually are we doing this, but then he says, not only did the, but there is a unity and an energy that the gospel brings that brings the people of God together. And I want to see a collective expression of this joy and this energy of living for Jesus. I want you to come together as one. See, the gospel not only saves and transforms the human soul, but it's only the gospel that has the unifying and energizing effect for the people of God to come together. And he says, that's what I want to see. 
this unity and energy that is generated by the gospel, and I want it to take expression by seeing you strive as the people of God in the Woodlawn community for the faith of the gospel. That's what he wants to see. Now, the book of Philippians is an interesting book here because when Paul writes this book back in the Philippians, he's writing it back to a very unique community. Because this is, he's not writing it back to a Jewish community. Because when he came to Philippi, we're told in Acts, he couldn't find many Jews. They didn't have a synagogue. He had to go down by the riverside to find a few people having some prayer. That's all he could find. And there weren't really many Greeks in Philippi either. It wasn't even a Greek city. It was a different kind of a city. It was a Roman city. Named after Philip, but maybe it was a Greek man. But it was a Roman city, and more than that, it was a Roman military community. You see, years before, on the plains of Philippi, just outside the borders of the town, I hear one of the greatest battles in history had been fought. When the Roman legions under Octavian had come together to fight the forces of, of Cleopatra, Anthony and Cleopatra, and they had fought this incredible battle in the plains of Philippi that, of course, the Romans won. Because they won everything. And so he's writing to a military community because the Romans had used Philippi as their military center. And they had set up all their offices there. They organized everything there. And after the battle was there, they retired there. They stayed there in order to control the entire region. And so when Paul is writing this letter, he is writing back to a Roman military community. And that's why the, uh, so many of the commentators point out that many of the words he used and the phrases that he used and the references he makes have military connotation to them, including what we see here in this verse, where he says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is he referencing here? Well, he is re referencing here the military strategy that allowed the Romans, enabled the Romans, to conquer the entire known world. It was a military strategy invented by Alexander the Great. He used it to conquer the world. It was refined under Julius Caesar. He used it to conquer the world. And it was being used then, it would be used for another 400 years for the Romans to control the world. And it's a military strategy that has come to be called the Roman phalanx. And if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you got some idea of what we're talking about here. You see, the way that you used to fight a battle back in the old days is that, that you know, the two armies are lined up. Let's just we're going to use you as the case of point. Here's the valley, and we're going to say that you're the, we're going to make you the Visigoths. Uh, okay. You're the Visigoths. You guys get to be the Romans. This is when they normally would fight. See, normally when you fight a battle back in those days, you'd line up all your guys on this side of the valley, the other guys line up on this side of the valley, they'd run into the middle of the valley, have a big fight, and whoever had the mostest, the biggest, and the baddest guys tended to win. Uh, the fight. But under Alexander, then Julius, and still going on here now, the Romans came up with something different. So they line up their troops on this side of the valley, the Zagoths line up on their side of the valley, and then instead of just charging across the valley, the drums start to beat on this side of the valley, and the Romans go into like a marching band routine. 
They're just marching different lines, crisscrossing one another, this sort of thing. You guys are watching this going, you know, it's kind of, whoa, what's going on here? But then if you look at the Romans over here, you begin to realize they're marching themselves into these boxes of men. Hundreds wide, hundreds deep. And they're staggered now all across the valley. And you're just watching the show uh, at this point in time. So then the, the, the Romans, all of a sudden the hordes blow, and all these shields come up all the way around, custom made, from, from the ground to just above their heads. Then, then the shields go over the top. So what have you got? The human tank. And then all these long spears come on out through holes made in these shields. And then the Romans just start to march across the valley. They're running. Just marching. Chomp, 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 chomp. Here they come. Well, you guys, while you're watching the whole show, trying to figure out what the heck these guys are doing. But now you do what you've been doing for generations. You charge. And you run across the valley. And your archers are shooting all their arrows like crazy, doing no harm to the Romans whatsoever. Just bouncing off their shields. Romans aren't even shooting their arrows yet. They're just doing their, just marching. So then you come in and you, you start to mingle amongst all these different boxes of men and you're hacking with your swords and your axes and you know all these things that arrows have, have stopped from your side because they don't want to kill you. But now the Romans start shooting their arrows. And they're not killing anybody of their own, but they're knocking down all sorts of visitors. Then the Romans stop marching a new set of horns blow, the shields drop, the, the Romans come out, and all of a sudden you realize you have been chopped up into little pieces all over the field. Your army has been divided all over the field. And no matter where you are on the battlefield, you're surrounded by Romans. They're coming at you from every direction, and you would be slaughtered. And the Romans did this over and over again. They just couldn't figure out how to beat them. We're told by historians as they marched across Gaul, what is now France, as they marched across Gaul, that the, the people would see the marching band routine going on and say, oh, so that's what everybody's talking about. They dropped their weapons and run away. And we're told the Romans won battle after battle, not firing a shot, as they marched across Gaul. See, this is what is being referenced here. Now, what was the Roman phalanx dependent on? The Roman phalanx was dependent on absolute unity and discipline. They all had to function together. If one of these phalanxes or whatever got scared of all these hairy people painted in blue, running at them and yelling at them and this sort of thing, and if they got scared and tried to start fighting on their own, they could open up the, the, uh, the whole army to be uh, defeated. So they had to stay unified. They had to fight together. They had to do what? They had to fight side by side with their, with their fellow soldiers to one shoulder or another. And when they did that, they were invincible. Nobody could beat them. What Paul is saying here is, I want to see all those of you who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus who have come to experience the realities and the power and the new life that is found in the gospel, I want to see you coming together. And I want to see a unity and an energy amongst you caused by this gospel for the gospel. And when you strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, nothing can beat you. Amen. Nothing can stop you. Amen. You will go undefeated. 
That's what he wants to see. Unfortunately, so many Christians and churches don't do that. They want to do their own thing, their own way, and they don't put any effort into coordinating their efforts. But when you are a local church in the Woodlawn community, how are you going to be effective? Well, with the power of the, of the gospel at your disposal, if you strive side by side for the faith of this gospel, then even though there are all sorts of obstacles and oppositions to this gospel, you're going to win. Because the very next verse goes on to say, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in no way frightened by your opposition. See, the challenge in mission has never been the mission field. Never has. But the battle belongs to the Lord. And the people of God, even though they might be just 300 soldiers against thousands and thousands, God said, you know, I'm the one going before you. They're already outnumbered. <laughs> so it's not going to be much of a battle. But I do need you to show up. And that's about all. But see, that's the way it is always. You know, one of the things I do, I'm a church planning coordinator for the PCA. So I coordinate church planning all over North America. So that means I get all over North America. And everywhere I go, people think it's the hardest place to start churches to do ministry. No matter where it is. New England, California, Seattle, Utah. Well, yeah, case there, actually. Yeah, it's pretty tough there. Or in the South, where they say, i got to get them unsaved before I get them saved, you know, stuff like that. I mean, there's all sorts of things like that. But the, 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 the key is that in the mission field. It doesn't matter if you're in a suburb or in a city. It doesn't matter if you're in a campus community or a rural community. With the power of the gospel, you already will win. If you are coming together under the banner of Jesus... With the power of the gospel. Because what God has said is, I have taken this power, this, this both potent power in the universe. And I've not only saved and changed your soul by it, but now I'm entrusting it to you. I'm entrusting this to you. Now you better treat it carefully. Because this is the most powerful force in the universe. I have given it to you because now you are ministers of the gospel. And that's what this church is all about. That's why this church, Living Hope, represents real living hope for Woodlawn and for the city of Chicago. Because you are a group of people who have come to know the saving, transforming power of the gospel. And if you believe that gospel, embrace it, and carry it out in this community, you will bring living hope to this neighborhood. Because that is what God has promised to do. And that's what Paul says to you. And this is my then final word to you. Only conduct yourselves now in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what the world needs. This is what Chicago needs. This is what Woodlawn needs. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I commit this church body to you. Thank you, Father, for Brad and Shannon and the leadership they have provided for this group. Thank you for bringing people like Donovan, 
to walk side by side with them for the faith of the gospel. Thank you for every member of this congregation that you have brought together, not only as a redeemed community to sing your praises, but to be a body of believers, to be a phalanx for Jesus in this community. To strive side by side, bringing the hope and the life and the power of the gospel to this community. May your blessing be upon them. Would you pour out your spirit upon them? Would you give them now continually and increasingly the wonder and joy of their salvation so that they might come together as a worshiping community of growing disciples who are themselves now engaged in mission? And I commit them into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think it's very appropriate this morning that hearing about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the call of the gospel here, that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because it is here we see the emblems of the gospel set before us very tangibly. This is the one thing that Jesus left behind for people to do. He says, this is what I want, as, as you come together as my people, I want you to never, ever forget what the gospel is all about. That my body was broken for you so yours could be made whole. My blood was shed for you so that you might drink instead the cup of life. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior, if you trust him, to forgive you your sins, to make you his child, to identify you with his people, then we invite you to participate in just a moment in this wonderful, wonderful sacrament that people all over the world throughout history have been celebrating together. This is something that in effect unites us to all peoples everywhere around the world, from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures. This is something that unites us to the believers who've gone before us over the last several thousand years because they celebrated this as well. This is the one thing we have, in addition to the Word of God, that really allows us to connect in this way. It's for the people of God to celebrate God's grace in their lives, for God to affirm this, saying, yes, this is an act of faith. You can actually live out your profession by taking and eating taking and drinking, allows you to act out your faith and to enter in to the drama of salvation itself. If you are one who believes in and trusts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then we invite you to participate in this, in this sacrament. If you're still trying to figure this out, haven't decided yet if you're ready to follow Jesus, then we ask you just to sit tight, think about these things, and maybe pray to God he will come into your life, forgive your sins, and make you one of his own. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. Thank you. When he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his people, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup. Say, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. 
I invite you now to come forward as the people of God, to take a piece of the bread, to take a cup, and to go back to your seats so that we can eat and drink as a unified body of believers together. I think the wine is marked as wine. Grape juice, marked as grape juice. Take one or the other and a piece of bread if you would. So come, eat. so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Eat the bread and remember that he died for you.
And as you go through this journey, would you come to points whether you really wonder if God cares? Do you really wonder whether he loves you? Remember that he did not spare even himself for you. He loves you this much. Drink this in remembrance of him. The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Blessed Father,